Government. We all know it's important to understand, be it state, local, or national, but doesn't the thought of it just make you want to, well, drink? If so, you're in the right place. I'm Angel Romero, your politics and pints aficionado, and this is Ballots and Brews, where we'll talk all things local beer while also diving into what in the world is happening at the local, state, and national government and what you can do about it. It's Schoolhouse Rocks meets the Daily Show meets C-SPAN, so let's get this show started. Ballots and brews on this cold and snowy day out there today. I hope you all are staying inside, staying warm, and staying safe. Uh, tonight we have another uh, pack show, as always, with you tonight. We are uh, going to be talking, of course, about all the latest, uh, craziest things happening at the state legislature and in local government. I'm really excited tonight to have John Wilson from Kansas Action for Children uh, joining us to talk all about their work advocating for Kansas kids. Uh, but before we do any of that, we are going to start, like we always do, talking about beer. And we are extra excited tonight because we have, again, with us tonight, Curry Spates, editor, publisher of 785 Magazine, and owner, of course, of 785 Live Radios. Curry, thanks for hanging out with us on a snow day. Of course. I, you know, I would do it anytime, but especially it's easy to talk about beer and talk with you on a snow day. Uh, right. Like, so I already started, I already had my, my Irish uh, hot chocolate today, so that's about how my day is, is going so it. far. I love it. <laughs> well, we decided when we had Curry on today. We were deciding, you know, what do we want to talk about? And so we, I've been looking up all kinds of beer trivia uh, as of late. There's all kinds of fun stuff out there about the world of beer. So today, we're going to play a little beer trivia if you're ready, Carice. Uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> if I'm ready, but let's do it. Let's see. <laughs> I feel like if there's anyone that's I feel like we are preeminently qualified to compete in beer trivia. I hope so, but I just don't. I, you know, I have no idea. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Okay, so we've got the first question up tonight. So uh, the Lone Star beer. Lone Star is the official beer of which U.S. state? Well, Texas. Absolutely. We had to start okay. off. We had to start off with a ringer question. So Yay! absolutely. <laughs> right. And had to start off slow. But it got me thinking. I started looking at this, and I found like Kansas does not actually have an official beer, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. And then I got wondering, like, what would it... It's like, obviously, I feel like it would be like a free state something would probably be it. Yeah. I mean, if I if I had to pick, you know, what would that beer like if we were deciding today, right? Right. Um, I would agree with you on that. But that's interesting. Uh, is that something I've ever questioned or wondered, but then that we don't have one. I wonder why. Right. Uh, for any legislators listening out there to us, uh, if you're looking for a builder, right, I'm just saying, we could totally go for an official beer designation. I, just, I uh, would, yep, I, I would support that. Uh, right. Like, we do some Free State Pale Ale or, or Ad Astra Pale Ale, just just throwing some ideas out there. Just hear right, it out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see our next question. Uh, uh, let's see. Question number two. Where is the Coors Brewing Company located? Oh, I know this. Uh, well, Wait, Coors is St. Louis, isn't it? So, no. other direction. Other direction. Other. I don't drink Coors. <laughs> um, gosh, I'm trying. Uh, let me think. Let me think here. It's well. Let me uh, wait. Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Colorado. Sorry. No, yeah, you're, not, you're totally good. Uh, do you know the city? Bonus points if you know the city. Uh, well, that actually, now that I'm thinking about it, so it's in Golden, isn't it? Yep, it's Golden, Golden Colorado. Colorado. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but it's actually the largest employer in Golden, Colorado, so which is pretty cool. Uh, that I did not know. Yeah, Golden is a really great um, city. 
actually. I have not been there. Yes, it's very nice. So awesome. I haven't been to the Coors plant, but yeah. <laughs> so there goals for next time. Right, right. All right. Question number three. Uh, this is about the making of beer. So the okay. the amber liquid that is extracted from malted barley at the beginning of the process. What is that liquid called that's extracted from the barley? Um. Okay, so say that one more time for me. Yep, so the amber liquid that is extracted from malted barley that kind of starts the process for making beer, what is the name of that amber liquid? Uh, Okay, so the fermentation, so you're not talking about the grain or the hops, obviously, but the actual liquid. Yeah. Is it, it's like a... Uh, wart? wart? Yeah, wart? correct, wart. Right? Yep. Wart, yeah, yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm sitting here trying to think back to my tall grass days. Like, okay, what was this? What was this? Yes, because right. I remember witch's wart, yes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it is, it's a very important, it is kind of, you know, when, when we've been in that pandemic and everyone had their kind of sourdough starters and all that, it's essentially right. a beer starter. It's, it's what kind of gets the process, uh, what gets the process kicked off uh, for That's making correct. beer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for those of you, by the way, that are interested in making beer, this is just a little plug. You can go to TopekaBrewers.com. That's the website for the Topeka Hall of Foamers, which is our own uh, local homebrew group. They're a great group of guys and gals uh, that get together and, and talk about uh, brewing beer. Most of the folks from our local breweries, from Norseman and, and Happy Bassett and all them are part of that group, too. So it's a really cool group uh, to be a part of it. That's something that you want to get into more. And it's the best name, Hall of uh, Right. I, 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 I so want to go to one of those meetings. I'm like, I feel like this is a, like, these are my people. Like, this would these be awesome. These are your people. That's right. <laughs> uh, let's see. My next question my favorite beer, uh, IPAs. What does IPA stand for? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I. Hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't. IPA. Stumper. I, I have no idea. <laughs> so it stands for India Pale Ale. Oh yeah. <laughs> I could I should have just looked and I'm like, I think I was, I was thinking too difficult. I think. Uh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. That's it's, right. Indian pale ale. That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's like, it's like the wordle today. Like whenever you think too hard about the wordle, like you can never get it. And so that's, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, fun fact. So it does stand for India Pale Ale, uh, but the style actually came from England. Uh, so go okay. figure. <laughs> random, yeah. your random tidbit for today. I like it. Uh, let's see this next question. Uh, a barrel of beer in the United States holds how many gallons of beer? How many gallons are in a barrel? Um. So would it be? Let me see here. Oh no! We're making people do math tonight. Well, yeah. So I'm thirty. Thirty. Ooh, so so close. It's thirty-one. 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 Okay. That's impressive, though. That was some good math right there. I'm pretty good with math. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact: thirty-one gallons of beer is about the amount that I need to drink after listening to the legislature for a week. Ah. Fun fun fact. Nice. Uh, So we got you. We're talking about uh, hops uh, earlier today. So this next question, hops uh, adds what kind of flavor to the taste of beer? What kind of flavor profile does hops typically add? You know, so so hops, uh, well, they're obviously in, in 
all beers. Um, but it's the bitterness, right? The, yeah. the, the bitterness that comes kind of from whether it's fruit or the, the, whatever they're using and the different kind of hops that they're using. Um, but yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna add that. Absolutely. That yeah. So that, that malted barley that we were talking about earlier, right. of course, that's that barley is usually pretty sweet. And so the right. hops kind of offsets. And of course the amount of hops, uh, depends on the beer. So if, if you are like me and you like your IPAs, you're going to know a lot of hops and probably more bitterness in your in your beer versus versus some other ones. I uh, who was I think West when we had West on the show he introduced me to the term hophead and I was like I didn't uh, know if that was a thing. Yep, that is a thing. <laughs> yes, he he's told me about that as well. And you know, and it's interesting. It, it's I think it's a, a clear definition. You know, you it's kind of even that I think you either like hoppy beers or you do not. Right. You know, there's, no, there's no middle ground between that. Right. So, so I always tell people like if, if the more you drink of it, the less you notice. So that's <laughs> yes, I agree. With you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always like this next question because it proves to me that beer is healthy, and this is how I justify it. Uh, okay. Beer contains ample amounts of which vitamin? Oh, which vitamin? Yeah, mm, vitamin C. <laughs> it's it's close. I don't know. It's vitamin B. Okay. Yeah. I don't know my vitamins that well, actually. I'm like, right. you know, I, don't <laughs> I would water. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. vitamin B, I think it's just healthy for you anyway. So. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it, turns, it turns out it's the yeast. Turns out vitamin B has, uh, or the yeast contains vitamin B. Uh, oh, that makes sense. So, yeah. Uh, apparently there's places, I was reading, there's places out there that actually will take an extract of brewer's yeast and then they turn it into vitamin supplements. So I was like, that's kind of cool. Gotcha. And then, and then now you're going to help me. So in vitamin B is what helps like take what we eat and give us energy, right? I, I think mean, so. Yeah. All, all vitamins, but you know, ultimately, so drink some beer. You get that good vitamin B of yeast, right? You have right. That energy. Absolutely. Yeah. See, the, you guys, it's like it's like drinking a salad, basically. I, I got it. <laughs> totally. Like it. That's what I'm gonna go with. Uh, let's. Oh, these were fun too. This is uh, questions about beer in different places. Uh, true or okay. false? In the Czech Republic, beer is cheaper than a bottle of Coca Cola. I'm gonna have to go with true. Yeah, you can get yes, yeah. Uh, a half liter of beer in uh, in Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, rarely costs more than a dollar fifty, which I think is glorious. Wow! Right? Wow. Probably, they're probably like I'm sure the Czech Republic is probably somewhere up there on like lists of like healthy or like happiest countries, and this is probably why. And this is probably why. <laughs> yes. uh, the next question is the cities on my list to visit. Which U.S. city is known as Birvana? Oh man. Um mm. ah, yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, so of course it would have to be in the northwest, because yeah, of course that's yeah, where all yeah. Our, yeah, that's where all the best ones are. I mean I'm 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 going like Milwaukee, like Oh Northwest, let's see. Uh Oh, I, you know, I just, I don't know. Yeah, so it's Portland. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. which, yeah, and then when you think about it, you're like, oh, that checks out. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, got it. Turns out there are... Another reason why to go to Portland, I've never been. <laughs> right, I was going to say, uh, so fun fact, I've never actually traveled west of Colorado. 
in the United States. Okay. Just super like, weird. Never California or no. Anything. No. So like, yeah. I don't know what's going on over there. <laughs> you know, I, well, it's interesting. You said I, Northwest is not. I haven't ventured. I mean, I've been to California and you know New Mexico and stuff like that. But but I definitely go more east than west. So. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Carolina. apparently in Portland they have fifty eight breweries all together. Wow. Which uh, is pretty outstanding. So it's like that's going to move that city. Uh, I think further up on my list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Visit. Absolutely. Beer Vaughn, I like it. Yeah. Okay, so our last question, because it's Ballots and Brews, we had to ask this one. Uh, who is the first U.S. president to actually brew his own beer in the White House? Oh, I know this. Okay, so the first president to brew his own beer in the White House. It's pretty uh, recently. Well, so Barack Obama said that. I mean, yeah. So, okay. Yep. Yay. Yeah. How many did I get? I got a, I got a couple. I was going to I was gonna say, I think you're almost about half and half, which is pretty good. That's okay. That's not too bad. Not yeah. too bad. Yeah. So these, so these ones were hard. I had to look up and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because then that was the, with that last one, too, is actually the, you know, brewing of the beer. Right. Uh, right. Because had that, that, that toast and, and uh, yeah. So yeah. Nice. Apparently they had, uh, as I was reading up on this, so they had, the, they apparently they have honeybees uh, on the South Lawn mm-hmm. White House and they took honey from the bees and so they made a White House honey ale, which sounds delicious. Sounds delicious. I love it. Honey beers. I, I bet the meetings went a little bit better. Uh, right. I'm just saying, like, listen, if I were president, I don't think I would have a meeting without beer. Like, you, right, can, right. you cannot govern this hot mess of a country without at least a drink. Like, truth. That is the truth statement right there. Just saying. Oh, my goodness. So, Grace, anything uh, you want folks to know about with uh, the magazine or with the radio station coming up? You know, um, just thanks for tuning in. And um, also, our next print issue um, is scheduled to be out on April 1st. So, we're working on that. So, look for the print issue of 785 Magazine. And then, of course, if you are looking for great events, whether they're beer related or live music, art, etc., Absolutely check out 785allspelledout.com. We have an awesome events calendar and we're excited because we've connected with Arts Connect. And so um, artstopeka.org is using that calendar and um, it's available really for anybody that wants to have it on their website. But we're really collaborating um, with other organizations to make a robust local events calendar. And it's it's pretty groovy. So check that out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I'll definitely plug that. You know, we, we a lot of times hear about folks saying, oh, it'd be great to have one place to find all of our events. And you could do that on the 785 website, especially as the weather gets warmer and more events start for start coming up uh, or start coming out. I definitely recommend you uh, checking out that webpage. So stay up to date on the latest greatest. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks again for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me always. And thank you for all you do, Angel. Yeah, absolutely. And for folks listening out there, go ahead and stay tuned. After the break, we will be back with our beer flight of the night, where we're going to recap all of the latest and greatest happenings in local and state government. You are listening to Bounds and Brews here on KSA 75 Live Radio. Seven Eight Five Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now, and we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com, and thanks for tuning in. 
Alrighty everyone, it's time for our beer flight of the night where we recap all the craziness that occurred in state and local government in the last week, so let's take a look. Uh, first we start with the K9 Pale Ale. Uh, this has to do with everyone's favorite Topeka development, College Hill. Um, seriously y'all, the College Hill development is so dramaful, uh, but the latest iteration of drama is pretty unique. Uh, come with me on this journey. Uh, so in the College Hill neighborhood just north of Washburn, we've got the College Hill development. Uh, famously the former home of Burger Stand and College Hill Pizza Pub, uh, which may have single-handedly gotten me through many late nights in law school, um, and also might be why I'm on a diet now. Uh, anyway, there is a master plan for this development. Uh, as part of that master plan, there is an area of land at 14th and Lane that sits empty. Uh, that land is part of the development, and per the master plan, that land was supposed to be used to build additional townhomes. With me so far? Okay, cool. So back in 2018, College Hill came to the, to the Topeka Planning Commission and said, hey, look, yeah, we know we were supposed to build some townhomes here, but we haven't yet, and we don't really have any plans to right now, and so since land's just sitting empty, you know what would be cool here? A dog park uh, that we could use for the residents of College Hill Apartments. Since that piece of land wasn't originally zoned for that kind of thing, College Hill had to apply uh, to the, the, the Planning Commission to essentially get a temporary exception put in uh, to the master plan, something called an interim use permit, um, that said, yes, you can go ahead and use that space as a dog park for three years. Uh, but at the end of those three years, you've either got to come back to us and ask for another three-year extension to keep using the land as a dog park, or the land will revert back to its original intended use, which was the building of those townhomes. Uh, so back in 2018, the Planning Commission said, sure. They passed it on to the City Council, and the City Council said, go forth and do great things with your dog park. Well, fast forward to, 20, to 2022, and it's now been more than three years, but, you know, hashtag pandemic and all that. Um, and so now the owner has come back to apply for another uh, three-year exception to continue using the land as a dog park for another three years. Uh, city staff talked to neighbors and others in the area, uh, all of whom seemingly had no problem with the frolicking of dogs in this area. Uh, the Planning Commission approved their request and sent it to the City Commission, who gets the final say. Um, and that's where we were Tuesday night. Uh, this seems pretty straightforward, right? Um, and do you remember the saga that has been the College Hill redevelopment in Topeka? We could probably do a whole other podcast on College Hill and mistakes made, um, but you know what? You could just drive by um, and look at the amount of vacant storefronts uh, to know that development has not progressed like we would necessarily like it to. Um, and so, for lack of citizen input and effort, um, I can tell you firsthand as a former Washburn student who attempted to work with folks in the area with others to help development along. Um, so... Uh, some of the city council were a little hesitant at allowing this dog park to continue. Uh, Councilman Mike Lesser was one of the first to speak out about at the council meeting, and he was joined by others that shared concerns that essentially by making this exception, we're kind of stringing things along, and we're keeping the developer from actually um, having to make any progress on that development. They can essentially just keep requesting these exceptions uh, for three years at a time for as long as they want to. Uh, Councilman Spencer Duncan actually had an interesting take on this. He actually ended up voting in support of continuing uh, the use as a dog park, um, only because he said while he sympathized with concerns over the development not moving fast enough, he wasn't really sure what the city council was prepared to do to make it move any faster. 
the council did end up denying the request for the extension. So if you live in a college hill apartment, it looks like your dog is going to have to find somewhere else to do his business for now. Uh, that means that land reverts back to its original use, which again is supposed to be for those construction of additional townhomes. Uh, Councilman Duncan did state after the vote that he is anxious to see now what the council uh, can do to put some pressure on developers to move this development along. Uh, the, the issue really is just an example of one of those seemingly small actions that's actually tied to a much larger challenge in the community. Uh, also, just to clarify as well, the City Council does not in fact hate dogs. I just want to make sure we get that straight out of the story. This uh, really just had to do with rather we continue to make an exception to the planned uses of this development. So please no one out there start a Puppies Against Topeka campaign or anything like that. Uh, if you do want to read a fascinating blog post about the whole history of the College Hill redevelopment efforts, you can actually go to biketopeka.com and search for College Hill, and you'll find an excellent post there that recounts really everything that's gone on with that development. Uh, our next beer tonight is the CU Encore IPA, and we hate to say I told you so, but we told you so. Uh, within just a week of uh, the legislature overriding the governor's veto of the Ad Astra 2 congressional redistricting map, uh, the state is facing two lawsuits over the map. Uh, the first was filed by the civic engagement organization Loudlight that you've heard us mention before, uh, along with some citizens of Wyandotte County, and it was filed against Kansas Secretary of State Scott Schwab and Wyandotte County uh, Elections Commissioner Michael Abbott. Uh, it alleges that the map was drawn with the explicit purpose of gaining political advantage and diluting the power of minority voters. Uh, it specifically points out splitting up Wyandotte County by splitting off Kansas City's minority, Democratic, and urban voters and putting them with a heavily white Republican rural district uh, so as to basically dilute um, the vote of those in the KC metro area. Um, the second lawsuit was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Kansas, the ACLU, and it makes similar arguments. Uh, interestingly, these lawsuits were filed in state court, which is different than the last time our maps were challenged. That challenge was brought in federal court um, at that time, so that alone is kind of an interesting component to this case. Um, I'm sure it was probably done from a legal strategy perspective uh, to see if, if state courts would view these maps differently than a federal court would. Um, the parties also might be counting on the fact that if uh, these maps do make it to the Kansas Supreme Court, uh, there is a, a left-leaning advantage on that court right now. Five of the seven justices were appointed by Democrats, uh, so that could be part of their, their legal strategy as well. Uh, whatever the case, we'll have to wait and see how the district courts rule in these cases, and then, of course, follow the, their subsequent appeals on those, those cases. Uh, of course, the state's argument is going to be that we follow the criteria we're supposed to follow, uh, which is that you develop districts that are contiguous, preserve political subdivisions, preserve communities of interest, and preserve the cores of prior districts. Uh, that community of interest component is going to be the key sticking point. That's what those suing are arguing about, that by splitting Wyandotte County in half, you're splitting up the KC metro area, one of the most diverse and one of the, most, uh, the biggest Democrat strongholds in the state, and you're putting them into areas that are going to dilute their votes. Uh, there is also a preference in our guidelines for not splitting counties in half uh, as part of our redistricting process. Uh, the state, of course, is going to counter that they had to split Wyandotte in half in order to make the population numbers uh, relatively equal uh, and make things work. Um, now, as we talked about before, there were alternatives out there um, that, again, had minimal population uh, variances that could still satisfy the law and would still keep the KC metro area together. So that's going to be the real crux of this, this argument. So 
Stay tuned for more. Uh, and by the way, the fun isn't over yet because next we are prepping for the introduction of redistricting maps for state legislative districts. So we are just getting started. Uh, up next on our beer flight, we have the Election Law Stout. Uh, as we discussed last time, both chambers of the legislature have themselves all in a tizzy about the, the uh, security of Kansas elections. And just to be clear, there are always things we can do to improve the efficiency and security of elections, and rational, common-sense solutions should really should be looked at. Uh, the last week or so has unleashed a slew of bills uh, on elections proposed through committees on both the Senate and House side, and we've got a little bit of everything. Uh, on the reasonable side, rooted in an actual good-faith effort to secure elections, uh, we have a bill that's under consideration that would require a hand count, a hand recount of 10% of the vote in county precincts whenever an election at any level, federal, state, or legislative, was decided by a margin of 1% or less on election night. So if you have a, a, an election in a county, no matter what level it is, and the margin of victory is less than 1%, this would require a hand count of 10% of the vote um, in those precincts. Uh, this requirement would actually be on top of a requirement that's already in place that requires 1% of precincts in each county uh, to be audited for a randomly selected race. There's always a random audit that happens um, after each election, um, and that audit is open and accessible to the public as well. Uh, the Secretary of State's office actually worked with the Kansas County Clerks and Election Officials Association uh, to make sure that these kind of reform efforts would, would be possible, number one, um, and wouldn't add an undue burden onto election officials and county clerks. There was some discussion in committee about how much guidance we need to give officials in conducting these audits so that we can so they can properly prepare for them. Uh, but other than that, there's nothing really too, too crazy. Um, and this is an example of a measure that's something that's pretty fair to consider. As are most of the reforms proposed by the Secretary of State's office. And remember, it's the Secretary of State's job, that's her whole mission, is to oversee elections in the state. Uh, and the Secretary's office tends to be pretty professional, uh, and they are folks who deal with things like, you know, facts uh, and actual reforms and stay out of some of the kind of kookier sides of this debate. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, on the other hand, you have other uh, measures that tend to be introduced by legislators who buy into all the kind of stop the steal uh, crap that's out there and have these big grand conspiracies about a whole range of illegal uh, activities that they think are running amok in Kansas elections, despite every indication to the contrary. Uh, one such bill, uh, let's see, one such bill we saw introduced this week was a bill, a bill dealing with ballot drop boxes. Um, that's those metal boxes that were set up in the previous election that allow folks to drop off their advance ballots in the box instead of having to mail them in or turn them into the election office in person. Uh, it's been a pretty convenient way to make voting more accessible to a larger population. Uh, that ease of accessibility is exactly what has prompted some legislators to want to either do away with drop boxes completely um, or subject them to really heavy regulation. I mean, there were actually bills introduced this last week to do both. Uh, Secretary of State Scott Schwab, a Republican, mind you, uh, has said, quote, I don't understand the angst with drop boxes, end quote, and has discussed how secure they are with legislators, in fact, even more secure than putting a ballot in the mail. Uh, there's actually a really great article out there in the Kansas Reflector right now that details just how secure drop boxes are. Uh, you guys, this article points out how people have tried to run over drop boxes, they've tried to light them on fire, they've tried to cut into them, they have rolled vehicles over them, and that ballot box just takes it like a champ, uh, which is kind of to be expected uh, when you consider that these boxes, 
weigh a thousand pounds. They're designed to withstand wind and rain and they're usually bolted to the ground. And of course, another favorite target is voting by mail. Uh, right now in Kansas, residents have to return their ballots postmarked by Election Day, um, but they can still be received in an election office up to three days after an election. Uh, so legislation has been introduced right now to require that ballots arrive at the county election office by 7 p.m. on election night, which is when polls close. Uh, mind you, we are in a time, of course, where it is not uncommon to experience delays in the U.S. Postal Service and where we saw record numbers of people vote by mail in the last election. Um, in fact, in the 2020 election, uh, per the Capitol Journal, uh, about 15,000 Kansas ballots arrived in election offices on that Thursday and Friday following Election Day, so which is within that time frame that's allowed by the law right now. Uh, just to give you some added perspective on this, the state of Oregon, which conducts all of its elections by mail, and has done so since 1998. Uh, in the 2016 presidential election, they only found 10 fraudulent ballots returned out of 2 million votes that were cast, which would be approximately 0.0005% of all ballots. And of those 10, at least one of them was an innocent mistake by an older voter who just got confused. Y'all, elections are important. So important that we actually have an entire office dedicated to overseeing them, the Secretary of State. Uh, we need to let the Secretary of State and election officers around the state do their jobs. We need to give them the tools they need to do their jobs, and we need to listen to them. Uh, it's appropriate for legislators to ask questions because, after all, they have an important oversight role. Uh, and when there's a need for legislation to enact some of these reforms, we should do it. But please, please spare me the crazy crackpot stuff that's peddled out there by the same guy who has late night infomercials for pillows. Uh, and to those legislators who say they're merely repeating what they've heard people say, uh, and we'll talk more about this later, but part of your job as an elected official is communicating with your constituents and telling your constituents the truth. And sometimes, yes, that means listening to your constituents, acknowledging their concerns, uh, but pushing back when the kinds of things they suggest have no basis in reality. Uh, being an elected official does not mean you are held hostage to cater to the whim of every conspiracy theorist who knows how to work a phone or an email. And finally, we have the, what did teachers ever do to you, poorer. Uh, so, if you ever had a dollar for every time you have heard any member of the legislature talk about how important teachers are, how essential they are, how much we need them, etc., we could probably fund the state budget for the next 10 years and still have enough left over to, I don't know, buy everyone their own, like, lesser prairie chicken or something. Uh, heck, the governor praised the hard work of teachers during her State of the State address, and it was one of the very few lines that got a bipartisan standing ovation during the speech. And yet, and yet, we saw this week the latest in a series of bills that has been introduced aimed squarely at teachers. Uh, this week it was the introduction of the so-called Parents' Bill of Rights, which sounds pretty glorious, right? The Parents' Bill of Rights. Like, it sounds like this wondrous, noble document. Um, this bill was actually introduced in both chambers this week, and here's essentially what it aims to do. Um, as the Kansas Reflector reported, both these bills allow parents of students in grades K-12 to inspect materials, activities, curriculum, lessons, syllabi, surveys, tests, questionnaires, examinations, books, magazines, handouts, and professional development and training materials posted online to each district's new parent transparency portal. Parents could then object to any of the learning materials or activities that they feel imp impairs a parent's firmly held beliefs 
and it guarantees parents the right to withdraw a child from their school activities, class, or program. Uh, again, I mentioned there's bills in each chamber. The Senate bill um, also says that schools should avoid any curriculum and teacher development work that promotes, quote, racially essentialist, end quote, doctrine, which apparently was the legislature's way to combat critical race theory, which despite every presentation of the fact that CRT is not actually taught in K-12 schools in Kansas, as verified by the Kansas Department of Education, the Kansas State School Board, and dozens of others, remains the favored boogeyman of the far right. Um, the House version of the bill goes even further with some really fun provisions that would make it easier to charge a teacher with the crime of showing obscene materials to students. What kind of obscene materials might that be? Well, the bill allows a parental review, for instance, of library books if any parents find them to include sexual content, violence, or profanity. And here's the really special part. As part of this discussion of obscenity, sexual conduct is defined in this bill as, amongst other things, homosexuality. Because the message we want to send to LGBTQ kids in Kansas who already face heightened stigma and threats of violence is that your very existence or discussion of you is obscene. The obscene thing here is this notion that legislators who purport to support teachers are sponsoring such ridiculous legislation that serves, one, to micromanage teachers who already have one of the hardest jobs there is in this state, and two, in many ways, is already duplicative of provisions that already exist that allow parents access to education materials. In fact, KSA 38-141B, which is called the Parental Rights Act, declares that it is the public policy of the state that parents shall retain the fundamental right to exercise primary control over the care and upbringing of their children in their charge. And this doesn't even get to the cost that's associated with this legislation. Remember, this legislation would require districts to build this transparency website where all these materials would have to be posted. And of course, there's the time involved in cataloging and, and scanning and building all, and putting all these materials in this website. And of course, we know what this is about because we've seen it in other states. It's about every special interest group under the sun being able to meticulously comb through every single page of curriculum material out there that every school has and raise objections left and right to any kind of thing they find objectionable because it doesn't fit with their particular worldview. Uh, Don Heidemann may have said it best today. Heidemann is a Republican, mind you, and a former Kansas House Majority Leader, actually, who said on Twitter today, quote, more information isn't the point. The objective is to make life so difficult for teachers that they leave the profession, thereby weakening the system of public education. Their goal is the destruction of public education. Those are pretty strong words, and I don't know if the destruction of public education is the end goal of some of these folks, but I do know that they don't think it would be the worst thing in the world to happen. Uh, Samantha Neal, the 2018 Kansas Teacher of the Year, bought at home uh, when she testified that the state already has a critical shortage of high quality, highly qualified teachers, and this bill would only make things worse. Um, as she put it, quote, not because they have something to hide, but because this bill puts into question the kind of people they are, end quote. The Republican Party is supposed to be the party of limited government, and in fact, we've heard this phrase over and over again, that government just needs to, quote, get out of our way and to let us do our jobs. And really, I couldn't think of any better advice for legislators to follow when it comes to teachers in this state. 
And that, folks, is our beer flight for tonight. Hopefully you had at least one beer or two to help get you through that. Uh, but stay tuned. Up next, we have a really exciting conversation with John Wilson, a former state legislator and also the current president of Kansas Action for Children. So we're going to talk about all kinds of things with him right after the break. You're listening to Balance of Brews here on KSF 75 Live Radio. everyone we are back and as the legislature rolls on in addition to the lawmakers themselves we've also um, had a lot of fun introducing you to some of the folks that are involved in advocating and lobbying uh, the legislature on different issues and so tonight we are so excited to have with us john wilson the president of kansas action for children john thanks for thanks for hanging out with us today i'm so glad to be here yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as we as we get started, can you just tell us uh, you know, a little bit about yourself and kind of how you found your way to KAC? Sure. So I um, found my way to KAC through a, what feels like a little bit of a non-traditional path, to be honest. Um, I'm not going to go way, way back, but, I'll, <laughs> but I think one of the things that I'm really proud of is the fact that I have a design education. So I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Design from KU. Oh. Uh, and uh, I, uh, my, I've never done design as a, as a career, though. Um, I've always been in some form of nonprofit work focused on policy change. So I spent right out of college, I spent roughly 11 years working for a national nonprofit uh, focused on reducing childhood obesity. And then uh, during that time, I decided to run for office. And first time I ran, I didn't win. Um, but then in 2012, I uh, was able to run again for an open seat and uh, won and served in the legislature from 2013 until I stepped down in 2017 to join Kansas Action for Children as then vice president. And then I stepped into this role as president uh, back in 2019 and have loved every minute of it. That's awesome. So you're you're a recovering legislator, we could say. I'm a recovering legislator. I like to tell people it's like I took the pill in the matrix and I can <laughs> I can now see the whole world and um and and what I like to do now is tell other people about how to navigate that world. You know, the yeah. the, the things that happen in the legislature have a direct impact on all of our lives and I want people to feel comfortable and confident engaging in the legislative process uh, because it matters. Absolutely. And it's such a, you know, for, for as much information as is out there, you know, there is still so much that is, it, that seems like an inside process to folks. And so to have people that can help them navigate that, that path is, is pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, for those who might not be uh, familiar with Kansas Action for Children, can you tell them a little bit about uh, what KEC does? 
Sure. Kansas Action for Children is a nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy organization working to make Kansas a place where every child has the opportunity to grow up healthy and thrive. Uh, we work with policymakers, local organizations, and fellow advocates to inform public policy, to foster collaboration across the state, and to promote an equitable tax system. And we've been doing that for about 40 years. Uh, so we help leaders get the information that they need. We're a resource to other organizations and advocates who don't have the ability to be in the state house. And, and again, we, we, we work with and learn from local communities so to make sure that their voices and their experiences are heard in Topeka. Absolutely. So just a few things going on, right? Just a few. <laughs> just yeah. A couple, I, I, a couple of things. Because, you know, as a, as a children's advocacy organization, we know that lots of things influence the health and well-being of children, which is why we uh, focus on early learning and health and family economic security and fiscal policy and housing. Lots of things uh, shape the, the well-being of kids. And there's not just one thing that's going to do it. Absolutely. Well, that, that's perfect leading you know, to our, this, this next uh, question I want to talk about. You know, when we talk about um, early education, we talk about early learning, not just early learning, but you know, high quality um, early learning, that, that concept of high quality early learning. What, is that, what does that really mean? And why is that so important for, for Kansas kids? Because we, we hear that term, I, I think, a lot. But what does, that, what does that really look like? Sure. That is such a great question. And so you, it's it's kind of one of those things where um, you you it's helpful to see it in action, and I'm I'm grateful that I've been able to go around the state and see family child care providers and centers who are providing that genuine high quality early learning, and so that looks like. Um, uh, settings where children are learning how to interact with each other to develop those social and emotional skills. It's where they're problem solving. It's where um, play is learning. It's where there's nutritious foods. It's where um, the, the people providing the care um, continue to grow as professionals and learn new ways of doing the work and new ways of supporting children. The high quality uh, early learning uh, involves um, making sure the parents are engaged and that, that they are participating in the learning for, for children. So it's a lot of different things, but I think, again, it, it, it is, uh, I can tell you what it's not. It is not just simply a place to put kids that, uh, that, it, where where they're in front of a TV, or where there's there's um, not intentionality around um, that play, which is learning. It's just kind of plopping a kid somewhere. Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and when we think about why that's so um, important for for kids, not only kids, kids, but really our our entire state. You know, there is so many dimensions as you talked about this earlier. But you know, one of the things, of course, that people I think don't always realize is you know, early education and, and early early learning is really investment in um, the future of our state, really the investment in our state's economy. If you want to talk a little bit about that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Angel. So uh, why it's important, as you mentioned, there's lots of reasons that it's important. Let's start with the, the impact on the child themselves. We know from decades of research now that when kids are involved in high quality early learning, they, they have better uh, health outcomes in life. They are more prepared to learn when they enter kindergarten. They, they have um, developed those skills to uh, resolve conflicts and to work as a team. Uh, 
the most formative years in our lives are those first five years. It's when uh, the brain is making new connections and high quality early learning really helps strengthen those connections. Uh, so that, so it's definitely important to the individual for, for, for immediate and long-term health and well-being. But then as you said, when, when children are in high quality early learning environments, that means the people th th that care for them, parents and grandparents, can can work and can um, can contribute to their communities in different ways, knowing that their child is not just safe, but they're going to be thriving because they're in a quality learning environment. So we just have to look at this pandemic as an example of without child care, without child care providers, uh, the economy really suffers because people can't work. Uh, and so uh, that's why you'll hear me and others uh, like the United Way talking about uh, the, the value of investing early and the value of early learning because it is kind of the foundation to so many other things. It's why we see more and more businesses using their voice to support um, high quality early learning. It's why we see the military talk about the value of, of, of genuine high quality early learning because it has an impact on uh, uh, readiness for the military and our national security uh, in, the, in the short term and in the long term. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's, and that's one of those things I think when I, you know, first, when I first came to United Way, as a reminder to those of us, I think most of you all, all know this, but of course, yours truly here works for United Way of Greater Topeka. And so, you know, one of the things I remember, uh, you know, just being amazed at was how many different dimensions of our society, you know, really stem from, uh, from that importance of, of early education, how it drives so much. You know, I think that there's a stat out there that says every dollar invested in early ed, you know, yields anywhere between seven to 11 dollars in, in future kind of economic return in your community. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, in fact, Nobel laureates have studied this issue and, and have come to that same conclusion that there's a massive return on investment. Yeah. Well, and when we think about in terms of, of kind of how uh, the kind of system of early education is is structured in Kansas, you know, something that folks might not be aware of is you know how we how we pay for this. You know, there's lots of conversation about investing in education in general, but I think folks aren't always aware of kind of the kind of network of support, how early education um, really uh, how that funding, um, how that funding gets to communities and gets to um, early education uh, centers and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit kind of broadly about how, how we structure early ed in the state and where that money comes from and how money finds its way to providers? Oh, yeah. So it is uh, a way more complex than I ever thought it would be. And, you know, I, I, I'm a parent. I have two small children, a five year old and a nine year old. And so I, I've personally navigated uh, with my wife the, the challenge of finding uh, high quality child care, of being able to pay for high quality child care and, and then also experience that tr transition from uh, center based care to uh, the, the, the public education system. So uh, there's a lot of parts and pieces in our early education system here in Kansas. Uh, Kansas, like all states, receives federal dollars uh, that can be used to enhance the quality of child care, but also help uh, families living on low wages afford child care. It's what's called the Child Care uh, uh, and Development Block Grant. So we receive those federal dollars and most of that money goes towards the child care assistance program here in Kansas, where uh, families living on low wages can, uh, if, they have, if they meet the requirements, can receive um, a subsidy that's um, loaded onto a, a electronic benefits card that then they can go to a provider and pay for a portion of the child of child care costs using those 
those federal dollars. So that's a really important program for, for those families. But stepping back from how we pay for it, uh, Kansas, like, like uh, all states, has what's called a mixed delivery system for, for child care and early learning. And that means child care happens in lots of different places. It happens in, in homes. It happens in centers. It happens in nonprofit places. It happens in for-profit places. There's faith-based child care. There's school-based child care. So that mixed delivery is really important because parents and caregivers have different needs and expectations for, for child care outside of the home. So uh, it's really great that we can offer uh, that the, the variety of settings. The challenge uh, with a mixed delivery system is making sure that you can get funding to those places. Uh, if you compare early learning to uh, K-12 education, K-12 education um, happens in either private schools or public schools and public schools. We, we kind of know what that looks like. You start in kindergarten and you graduate uh, after you know 12th grade and there's state funding to support that education. There's currently not that same structure of funding for anything you know prior to three and four year old pre-k uh, in Kansas and so it makes it kind of challenging actually um, because the the there there's only kind of so many sources to, to fund it and right now what we're experiencing in Kansas and across the country is that parents, can't afford to pay more and childcare providers can't afford to make less. And so what is needed is some sort of uh, a third party investment. And we think there's an important role for the state and federal government to fill that gap because what we can't have continue to happen is childcare providers um, working on near poverty wages without health insurance, without the types of things that come with uh, 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 most people's jobs um, and then expect that to be a long term solution. Um, it's so so it is really it's a it's a complex system. And there are some um, seemingly straightforward ways to try to address it. But it comes down to, I think, uh, the uh, continued collaboration among uh, agencies and, and of course, um, the political will to put the money where it needs to go too. Sure. And well, and you talked about these just touch on this a little bit, uh, but you know, we're seeing across the country and in Kansas too, you know, a real, a real crisis to when it comes to childcare and the pandemic as it has with many things has kind of really laid that bare for a lot of folks to see, but can you describe, you know, what that, what that looks like in our communities? What are the things that, that folks are, are experiencing? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can speak from my own experience and also speak from conversations with other folks is uh, I think the first thing that many new parents uh, experience is sticker shock at the price of childcare. And given that uh, many of us uh, have children kind of early on in our careers uh, and and early on uh, in kind of um, our lives, we we don't have the type of savings needed for for that kind of cost. Like you might be able to save, you know, 18 years for college or technical school or something. So it's that sticker shock is the, the first and probably most prominent thing that we see. You know, in Kansas, the average cost for infant care in a center is $935 a month. I mean, think about that. You think about $935 compared to your rent, yeah. compared to your mortgage. That's huge. Huge. Um, and you think about paying that for uh, paying that or slightly less for when the when ch children get older for, you know, up, up to four years sometimes. I mean, it's a massive cost that we haven't had time to save for. So sticker shock is the biggest thing. I think that the other thing that parents experience, particularly parents who uh, uh, need to rely on the child care assistance program is 
it's hard to find childcare that you can afford and that is convenient for your life. So um, uh, there, there are not enough providers right now in Kansas that are enrolled in the DCF program that allows them to take that childcare assistance card. So uh, people have to spend a long time searching for childcare. So that means waiting lists and just think about the stress that comes when you just don't know when your, your baby is going to find a place that allows you to feel comfortable as a parent to, to leave them there so that you can go work and pay for the very expensive child care. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things that, that you touched on too that's that's unique about this issue is that it, it affects, tends to affect folks um, at lots of different income levels. So we're talking about folks who are in that low to moderate income level, but it's also folks who, who sometimes have a, a good disposable income, but it's, you know, sometimes you don't have the ability, as you mentioned, to be able to save a budget for those uh, those costs. And so when you have multiple kids, we start having two or three kids, those costs add up pretty quick. Oh man, they yes, they add up. And I think another important thing is, yeah, as you said, this is the, the high cost affects uh, everybody and there's folks that it affects even more. Uh, all of us have experienced wait lists or having to settle for a provider that's further away from your job because that's the only thing available. Or uh, oftentimes you see one, one of the caregivers leave the workforce to either like uh, because of cost re- reasons or logistics reasons. And what we see is typically women leaving the workforce. So there is a real uh, uh, equity issue at play here that and, and that was only exacerbated during the pandemic when we saw women leaving the workforce in massive numbers because they often are seen as the ones that um, uh, are responsible for, for child care or they often have maybe maybe they had lower wages than their spouse. Um, and that in and of itself is also an equity issue as well. So it is it's it is such a challenge. And I think I hope for the folks listening to this, you understand that we get it as an organization. And part of our responsibility is making sure that lawmakers get it because many lawmakers uh, aren't experiencing these challenges and haven't had to experience these challenges because of when what it was like when they were raising children. The bottom line right now is in Kansas, it, it, you need both incomes to make uh, to make it work, to pay for rent, to pay for housing, to pay for cars, to pay for child care, all of it to save money to pay down debt. It takes two incomes to, to do that. So you can't you can't just have somebody um, stay home and make it and have it be easy. And of course, you know this too that that the the more finances become hard, the the hard, the the more stress that that happens in the household. And we know that recurrent hardships lead to higher levels of stress, which become toxic. And toxic stress has a real impact on developing children. I mean, literally impacts the brain. Uh, and so uh, we believe that we need to be doing all we can as a state to make sure that those first uh, years of a child's life are um, as healthy and supportive as possible. And in order for that to be the case, we need to make sure that people caring for kids, the adults and child care providers and parents and grandparents have, have their basic needs covered as well. Absolutely. Well, and, and speaking of our, of our friends under the dome in the legislature, so when you, when you think about you know, state policies and systems and, and things like that, that, that need to, to change to, to alleviate some of these, these challenges, you know, what are some of those, those policy choices that you're looking at legislators to make? What are some things that would help alleviate some of this crisis? Mm-hmm. 
So there, so there are some things happening this legislative session that are important steps forward. A couple of bills come to mind. The first is House Bill 2525, which uh, as of right now is, is ready for the full House to vote on um, if they decide to, to take it up. And House Bill 2525 uh, eliminates a number of barriers to accessing the child care assistance program uh, and, and the food assistance program too. Kansas is one of the few states that has erected these barriers uh, like requiring people to um, to cooperate with child support enforcement uh, and 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 why this is a challenge is is many 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 people um, don't feel safe uh, entering into those agreements because it puts them in, in contact with a former partner that might be abusive or violent, or they've developed uh, arrangements that allow them to to that are that are more informal but they're really effective at making it work. So we uh, we are working on trying to re- remove that barrier as well as some of the barriers for uh, work requirements for people pursuing education. Uh, we have some very uh, strict requirements that are hard for most people to make. And so we are simply looking to uh, alleviate some of those barriers. So that's a really important bill. And I really hope that um, members of the House take it up uh, before this important deadline next week in the legislature. There's other bills as well that are that are that won't completely solve the child care crisis in Kansas, but are important steps forward. Uh, and there there's a employer tax credit uh, out there, House Bill 2414 and Senate Bill 263, and those uh, basically allow uh, employers to get a tax credit if they help their employees pay for or find child care. Uh, and and so that's again not gonna, not going to solve everything, but it's an important step forward. And both of those bills are are ready to be voted on by their respective chambers. Uh, we just need need leadership to bring them up. Uh, and then you know finally, I would say that the state can be doing more to just um, uh, pull down more federal dollars to support uh, the child care assistance program and to support programs to pr- improve quality. And I think. Uh, they need to consider um, adding more funding to uh, programs that help start child care centers and, and, and programs where there aren't any um, and consider t- treating child care like they do at K-12 education, that it's an essential thing for the health and well-being and, and development of kids. Um, so those are a few things. And then because it's not because ju- you could have children go to the highest quality programs with uh, with with professionals who are uh, fairly compensated. But if they go back to homes where there's food insecurity or where there's the threat of utilities being shut off, then that's not very helpful. So lawmakers need to consider these other programs that help families uh, make ends meet and meet their basic needs. Programs like Medicaid expansion to provide health insurance for uh, low income families or uh, making sure that we've removed all the barriers for the food assistance programs or ways to um, uh, uh, reduce the cost of food by eliminating the food sales tax. All these things are related because if we, by not doing these other things, we undercut any investments we make in high quality early learning and childcare. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's early in like, like many issues in the legislature, you know, sometimes it's like we we wait for things to be in a crisis before we, before we address or we, we wait for the house to be on fire before we really then think, oh, we've got to act, we've got to do something. And so yeah, I'm curious, and and I think, you know, talking about the food sales tax, talking about reducing those barriers to on food insecurity, those types of things. What are some of those other things that you think the legislature could do to be more proactive instead of reactive always in this, in this area? Mm -hmm. So 
I think there are there are, there are actions that they can take, and there's also an attitude uh, shift that needs to happen. And I, I really hope lawmakers uh, avoid the temptation to make uh, early education and childcare a, a partisan thing and and have it succumb to the same type of political bickering that we see in other areas. Uh, so that's the first, that's an attitude shift. Another attitude shift is understanding that childcare is not babysitting and childcare is a critical infrastructure to the health of our state. So that might take a, a shift in their perspective. Uh, and that's why we need uh, uh, more people to 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 share their stories of, of their experience with finding childcare and paying for childcare, so that lawmakers understand it's a bigger deal than maybe they think it they thought it was. Uh, and then the immediate actions, yeah, I think I think um, at a time when we have this budget surplus and we're seeing revenue coming in stronger than expected, uh, it's it's a time for us to make some of those critical investments because um, right now in Kansas, uh, a lot. Of our early education infrastructure is paid for through um, money from the from uh, Master Tobacco Settlement Agreement. So back in the '90s, when uh, Big Tobacco was sued, there was a settlement that then allowed states to receive funds. And right now. Um, Kansas uses those funds to support early education. So really creative thinking on the part of the people that set up the Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund. But outside of those investments, there's not a lot of other state general fund dollars going towards earlier education. And I think there's a real opportunity to do more uh, through state general funding. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, this this whole idea, too, uh, of advocacy and, and public policy, when it comes to nonprofits, and it's always something I think that is really interesting. You know, people think of nonprofits and they think of volunteering and they think of donating and they think of those kinds of ways to be involved with nonprofits. But I don't think advocacy is something that people, oh, that always comes to mind uh, when folks think about nonprofits. Um, but it is so important. And you want to talk a little bit about, you know, why is this kind of advocacy, these kind of uh, the uh, public policy measures that you're talking about, why is that so important for for nonprofit organizations uh, to to focus on and be part of. Yeah, that, that's such an important question and, and point. And I can look to my own life where I've, I've spent a lot of my life doing volunteer work and direct service. And that direct service meets an immediate need in somebody's life or, or meets an immediate community need. And that is critical and, and has to continue. Uh, and at the same time, we know that when you can craft the right policy, so a state law or a regulation or a federal law or regulation, if you can craft the right policy, that can help tens and tens of thousands of people uh, and so and and it changes the long-term trajectory of things so we need both things and I and I hope that for those who are listening who work for nonprofits I hope you understand that nonprofits can be involved in advocacy and should be involved in advocacy and it doesn't mean changing the mission of your organization it means carving a little sliver of your time I know time is limited, but carving a a sliver of time to pay attention to what's happened in the legislature or, you know, subscribe to KAC's newsletter so that you can get up to the minute information of what's happening and understand when to use your voice and how to use your voice, because that's our work to do. We're eyes and ears in the state house paying attention to these things. And when the time is needed for somebody's voice or for uh, uh, to to, to contact lawmaker, we let people know that. Awesome. That was going to be actually my next question was for folks who want to stay up. 
uh, up to date on your work and stay up to date on those issues. It sounds like so your newsletters is one area they could do that. Anything else that people should do to, to keep up with you guys? Yeah, so uh, I would love to have you follow us on Twitter. We're at Kansas Action. Uh, and, and of course, yeah, uh, go to kac.org to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, during legislative session, which is January till roughly May, we send weekly updates about what's happening. And occasionally, we'll send out um, action alerts when we think your voice would be important for a particular lawmaker or group of lawmakers to hear. Awesome. Well, there you go, folks. Make sure to look up Kids Action for Children on social media. Subscribe to that newsletter. And for those of you that want to be super nerdy like myself, you've got some of those bill numbers. You can even flip those up online and track those too on legislature's website as well. Uh, John, thanks for, for hanging out with us tonight and for, for everything you guys are doing um, on behalf of Kansas Kids. I'm so glad that, that we had the time together and I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for folks listening out there, make sure to stay tuned. After the break, we are going to wrap things up with our take action moment of the night. You are listening to Ballots and Brews here on KSEP, Sony 5 Live Radio. Alrighty, everyone, we're going to wrap things up tonight with our take action moment of the night. Just a, a few things to let you know about first on the city side of things. Um, at Tuesday's uh, city council meeting, there are actually a couple of reminders um, to pass on to you all. The first is, um, you should uh, you'll recall from our last uh, our last show, we talked about the city's uh, consideration and discussion of the ARPA funds. Those funds that the city is getting from the federal government as part of the American Rescue Plan Act. And so at at the last city council meeting two Tuesdays ago, the city got to hear from uh, a, over a dozen different organizations and people in a community advocating for different ways those dollars can be used. Um, and then the city took all that feedback um, and then last Saturday had a big uh, all morning long uh, weekend session uh, to kind of go through all those and kind of come up with a plan of, for how to move forward uh, with those, uh, with how we invest those funds in our community. Again, we're talking $45 million in once in a generation type funding uh, investment in our community. And so what the city decided to do was they, they carved out 35 million of that to still use on investment in um, city's infrastructure, utility infrastructure specifically. But the other $10 million of those funds, they're going to hold um, to invest in social services in the city. Um, and so uh, to that end, what the city is going to do is they're actually going to develop an application uh, for social service agencies to fill out um, in order to apply uh, for funding, uh, for portions of that funding uh, to, to further their work in the community. Um, so the kickoff to that process will actually be happening um, on March 1st, March 1st, excuse me, with uh, the first meeting of the city's policy and finance committee to discuss this matter. They're going to meet on March 1st at 1.30 p.m. Um, that meeting should be uh, televised on Public Access Channel 4. Um, and like most public meetings that the city has, it'll also likely be streamed on the city of Topeka's Facebook page. Um, but that's March 1st at 1.30 p.m. The city's policy and finance committee um, is going to meet to start, uh, you know, kind of taking their first crack at putting together the application for social service agencies to complete, to kind of get their share of, of that $10 million. So you can tune in and watch the city begin to, to shape that process. Um, also, we talked a little while ago about this really cool approach that the city has taken to how they prepare budgets, um, and specifically the, the opportunity that the public had to be a part of that process this year. And um, they've really developed these kind of budget working groups um, that are made up of actually citizens who get to work alongside city council or city staff members and city council members uh, to review different pieces of the budget and provide their input and recommendations and that sort of thing. And it's been 
this really kind of cool interactive process uh, between citizens and city government. Um, there are two more meetings coming up of those committees, one on March 10th and one actually this coming Monday on February 21st. Um, there's actually still time to join those committees. Um, so they had a process a little while ago where you could sign up to be a part of those committees, um, but there's actually still room on those committees. Uh, so if you're interested, you can actually email the mayor's office. Um, that email is mayor at Topeka.org. You can actually email the mayor's office um, and ask to be included and put onto uh, one of those budget committees. Uh, a really cool way, uh, again, to, uh, to, to be a part of the budget process for the city. Last reminder, too, on the legislative side of things, you might have noticed there's a lot happening uh, in the legislature, and we've seen bills being introduced left and right. Uh, an important thing to remember is that next Thursday, I believe, yep, next Thursday, the 24th, is something called Turnaround Day in the legislature. It's a big deal on the Kansas legislative calendar. Um, that is the date by which every bill that's introduced has to pass its house of origin, uh, meaning that if it's a bill introduced in the House, it needs to have passed the House, or likewise on a Senate in order for it to continue in the legislative year. Uh, there are some exceptions for bills that are from certain committees or bills that are deemed uh, blessed. Uh, so unless there's any hashtag blessed bills out there, uh, those bills uh, will not move on in the process if they haven't passed their chamber of origin by next Thursday. Um, so all of that to say that you're going to see a lot of, uh, of action happening in this next week in the legislature, especially a lot of action on the floors of the Senate and the House as they work to try and get those bills uh, passed out so that they don't turn into a pumpkin after February 24th. Um, so, you know, a reminder about you can find the legislature on YouTube. They have their own le their YouTube channel where you can watch um, all sessions, floor sessions of the Senate and House, as well as all those committee meetings live as they happen um, on the legislature's YouTube page. Just wanted to remind you about that as action heats up this next week. Um, and then, finally, as we wrap things up today, that, that's really it for the content for today's show, but a very, very important announcement that we wanted to let you know. Um, our show is actually moving to a new time. Uh, so, starting on Monday, February 28th, you can catch Ballads and Brews still on 785live.com, but it will be airing on Mondays at 8 p.m. with our Hangover uh, edition, the re-airing, uh, happening Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Uh, so, again, Mondays at 8 p.m. and Tuesdays at 8 a.m. at 785live.com. Uh, that schedule is going to allow us to uh, maintain our sanity a little bit when it comes to our production schedule and, and getting quality content out to you all. That's going to allow us to give you kind of a preview of the week ahead, also in state and local government. So we're excited to bring even more content to you. So you'll be able to catch us Monday nights and be able to start your week off uh, with us on 785live.com. So what that means is no show next Thursday. You're going to get a little break from us that night. But then Monday, February 28th, we'll start our new schedule um, of shows at night at 8 p.m. So we're looking forward to coming at you at that new date and time. Um, again, remember to follow us on social media if you don't already. You can find us um, on Facebook under Ballots and Brews and on Twitter. It's just at Ballots Brews. You can follow along and stay up to date on there and see uh, you'll see reminders about our new show time um, on there as well. And of course, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, we're on all of those. And I encourage you to subscribe and of course, if you like what you hear on those, you can leave us a review as well. Um, but until next time, folks, uh, please, please, please stay safe, drink some good beer, and we'll see you next time here on Ballads and Brews on KSEP 75 Live Radio.
closing time Turn all of the lights on Over every boy and every girl Closing time One last call for alcohol So finish your whiskey or beer Closing time You don't have to go home But you can't stay Some other people